Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have our full crew here in the studio. Good morning, Dustin. Good morning. Brian. Morning, everybody. Philip. Good morning, guys. Bob. Hello, guys. So we're happy to have everybody here. We haven't had everybody in in a while, and we've got a chance to talk through a listener question that was about when to feed calves relative to calving. Dustin's got some questions for us, and then we're going to wrap up by talking about what are some treatments that we might do for some of those scouring calves, specifically focused on some of the electrolytes, and what are some of the considerations in that aspect? Before we jump into those questions, guys, I have, I have a question for you. It is winter time, which is good movie watching time. And I want to know the movie that you have rewatched the most. What is the movie that you've rewatched the most? All right, that's easy. We, we, the Sting. The my, sting. Favorite, it's my favorite movie. I don't know that one. What is that one? Oh, oh, Paul Newman. Yeah. It's a, it's a good movie. It's a long movie. Is it like from 1960s? <laughs> yeah. It is. Okay, so that explains why I haven't seen it. It's in color. It's in I color. Think it came out in like in mid seventies. Yeah. It's in color. Yeah, oh, it's, a talkie. it's a talkie. <laughs> yeah. It's a talkie. Yeah. <laughs> Probably like the Rocky movies. I've seen those multiple times. The Die Hard movies. The original. The original Rocky movies. Yeah. Uh -huh. Okay. Dustin. I don't know. That's a good question. A couple that I've watched more recently is the. Top Gun, both the original mm. and the, yeah. no, the new. You gotta one. go back yeah. for those. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But also Godfather. I don't know why. I just uh, one and two like, particularly. I like the first one the best. But yeah, yeah. Brian. <sighs> yeah, I don't, uh, probably probably the Rocky movies as well. But I yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a hard yeah that's a hard one. No, not everybody can watch it. I mean, and Bob nailed it right away. He might be watching the Sting tonight. I might. <laughs> so. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see a good uptick on the streaming of the Sting. Yes. I don't, is it on streaming, or do you still have it on VHS? Uh, I've got it on a VHS, and but you can <laughs> stream it. By the way. Awesome. So we had a, a great question from a listener, and as always, if you have questions for us, you can send them to us at bciksu.edu. And this listener question was focused on feeding cows in the evening to try to get them to calve in the morning, and basically they were asking. Is there any science to this? So, Bob and Philip, I'm going to turn to you guys and see, get your opinions. There is a little bit of science to it. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of research done that I could find, um, but there was a study from uh, Iowa State where they looked at, they tracked about 1,300 cows across 15 farms, and the ones that fed in the evening hours, like around dusk or so, had about 85% of those cows calved between 6 a.m. and uh, 6 p.m. the next day. Or, or not the next, so the next day, but sorry. The, that, those In, uh, those yeah, daytime hours, calves. yeah. Um, and those farms that did not, it was about 50-50 between daylight hours and nighttime hours. As so far basically as. making the cows eat in the evenings tended to make them not calve during the nighttime. Yeah, shifted and, that calving to and, the daylight hours. And I've, I had some producers that did that, and I, I agree that I think it does I think it does shift that. It's nowhere near 100%. I mean, no. you're still going to have some cows that calve at night, um, but it, it will, I think, move some cows to calve during daylight hours. So it might be worth it. Now, a couple of things of that means that, you know, either you're feeding square bales or you're, you're hand-delivering ground hay or something like that, or you've got bales in a lot that you exclude cows from during uh, part of the day and only allow them in there in the evenings and at nighttime. So logistics to get it accomplished may not be really useful for all farms, but, but some, it might be something that's interesting to them. 
Yeah, and I, well, and I think, too, I mean, if you're feeding supplement, feeding a supplement in, like, if you're feeding grain to your cows or whatever, feeding that in the evening time would probably at least make some difference as far as shifting that, the high-energy calories to... Yeah, I'm, but the, the research was really about feeding hay at night, and that's, my clients were, you know, using small, my small square bales, and so they would put out enough, you know, and the cows would basically consume it before the next morning. Uh, I also had one client that had a day job, and they actually used it opposite. <laughs> so they they fed during the day so that they they would calve at night. And since I was the veterinarian, it it, it really appeared to work well in that sense because I was doing a lot of nighttime calvings. Yeah. So, <laughs> that's not exactly uh, what you wanted. Not exactly the way I was thinking that to use it. Well, that's that's a question I was going to ask was, and you guys already kind of hit it. But if I've just got round bales out there and I feed the supplement. It may or may not make much difference when I feed that supplement because they've got access to hay all, all the day. time. Yeah, I, I think to really get the the impact that you want, it's going to have to be the hay feeding. Did either of the studies you guys referenced did they did they talk about why? Like, is there any suspicion of why this happens? Yeah, I I don't know why. I mean, yeah. you could think about gut feel. You could think about you know the hormonal patterns that come with with digestion. I I I don't know. Yeah, because I I think. You know, anecdotally, I've heard the same thing, and I've, but I, I just nobody's ever really said why that happens. So, and that, yeah. I've never seen anything that really explains the biology of why that happened. You know, and and one quick thing, I think you know the reason to do this is to make calving more convenient, but it doesn't eliminate the need to check cows during the nighttime. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it doesn't work so well that now I can sleep through the night and don't have to worry about it, it should mean that maybe I have fewer actual. Uh, times when I need to assist a cow dur- during the nighttime, but I still need to check and I still need to monitor, um, just like I would. So it, it, again, it's not going to solve all your problems. No, I can. You just you still got to check. Just hopefully you're going to spend less time out there. Get back to bed. Get back to bed. <laughs> yes. Well, and it just depends on what your schedule is. But so there may be very little cost for implementing this. In which case, why not? Have to have a lot of benefit. Right. If there, if it's a high cost because I have to take off work early to go do this before it gets dark, then that could be a that could be a problem, and it, the benefit may not be worth it. But if it's easy to do, uh, it may make a difference. Even with that supplement, I wouldn't count on it. Like you said, it, it's not going to replace. It's not going to get rid of all of my nighttime calving. So I think it's going to be a, an option there. But what you guys are saying is, there are some studies out there, and we also know there's some anecdotal reports. And separating those two, which is what makes this a good question, is some of the studies would say, yeah, it helps some. The anecdotal reports say it's the greatest thing ever. So probably you, I'd lean more toward the it helps some part. Feed them in the evening if you can. If not, whenever you feed them, if you've got round bales out there, you're still going to be needing to do those observations. And if you want to hear more about those observations, we talked about it last time on the podcast of what to look for in calving. Dustin, I'm going to turn to you because I know you've prepared some questions and I can see you've got charts and graphs and figures as any good economist carries around with them. Don't uh, always don't leave my office without them. <laughs> Excellent. So today I was I read an article I don't know, a couple of days ago about hay prices. Uh, it was talking kind of about the very heterogeneous, whether it was in northern Iowa versus southern Iowa, there's still a pretty big difference, uh, eastern Corn Belt versus western Corn Belt, et cetera. And so then I thought, you know, you know we've talked in the, on past podcasts about, uh, you know, feed costs being one of the, maybe the number one uh, expense. And so I thought, let's just talk about, hey, I, and 
when I was, I was reading through all these different reports on hay, I didn't realize how little I knew about mostly just production of questions I got today. So I'm going to lead in with just some uh, hay production questions or yeah, I guess we'll talk about hay. So we're going to talk all hay production by state in 2023. And then I want to go back up, pull a different year just because I wasn't sure if 2023 was a maybe a bad year just because of the drought stuff. But so you can tell me the top three uh, states that produce. Mm. This is all hay. This isn't specifically to alfalfa or anything right. like that. So all hay. I, I would guess one, two, California three. because of the dairies and the alfalfa production, but and they're or big. at least the, and they're least, big. This is tons can, per state produced. Yeah, they at least this consume is gonna be tons a lot per state for 2020. All right, so I'm going to go. I'm going to put California on my list. I think Kansas is a pretty big hay producer. So I'm going to put Kansas on the list and and uh, man, Nebraska. I'm, I'm, okay. I am guessing, Dustin. I can yeah. tell. I yeah. can tell. <laughs> <laughs> it's apparent. <laughs> I think Bob's probably close. I might throw Wyoming in, in there. They, they, have, they produce quite a bit of alfalfa there. Um, but then California probably is probably number one. Um, I'm trying to think about the Northwest. I don't know if Idaho and their, their area produces, produces a whole lot of hay. It's apparent you're clearly guessing too. Yes, it is. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying to think of the climate in different places around the country. Uh, California, South Dakota, and uh, oh, Tennessee. You, why don't you throw in Missouri? I, Missouri might not be a bad. It one. might not be yeah. a bad choice as far as quite a bit of hay production. But I got one that one state. South Dakota, I, number three. I actually saw over Dustin's shoulder one of their answers. So, but I. I will say a lot of that hay from California gets shipped in. So I, mm-hmm. I, I don't think – I would have not put California very high on that list. So well, You're the only one at the table that's lived there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I'm also the only one at the table that saw over Dustin's shoulder too. So um, <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't answer because I saw that. So in 2023 was a little different, I think, because of the drought, but it was Oklahoma yeah. at 5,900 really? uh, tons. Texas at 5,500 tons, and then South Dakota at 54. I thought about now, Texas. if we compare this to 2004, I just went back 20 years just to see. Oh, it's it's definitely different. Texas is at 10,000, 10.5 mm. tons. Missouri's number two at 81, mm. and then South Dakota almost 7,000. Mm. Yeah. So it it does vary a little bit, it, but it that does. might be yeah rainfall now, and other things. Now I want to go back. Now we're going to specifically talk about alfalfa okay so what's what's the number one state in 23 and then we'll talk about go back to 2004 as well i'm gonna say kansas for alfalfa yeah it's yeah, I, it's pretty high yeah. it's pretty high well since oklahoma was the answer how about if i go with oklahoma uh, for all i mean i'm gonna stay with south dakota i'll say arizona it was idaho in oh, or, sorry yeah Actually, yeah, Idaho in uh, was in 2023, and then in 2004 was California. So what was interesting with California, they were way up in 2002, 2000, and then it just it's. Well, I just wonder if there's been some kind of water restrictions. I wonder about the water issues, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. but it it's it just continually. Uh, so you, you you're not the only one that has some ignorance in the area of hay production on a national scale. <laughs> <laughs> so my last questions on just the production is so we've talked about just total production so you think about texas how big it is let's talk about yield so just mm. this is last year's yield so uh, per acre so on a per per ton per acre yeah 
what states? Just one, your top one or two. I'll give you the U.S. What's, average is 2.25 tons per acre. acre. This is all hay. This is going to be all hay. Yep. I didn't break it out by. I'm going to say Missouri, maybe yeah. Tennessee. I'm going east with lots of rainfall. I think it's got to be southeast somewhere. Yeah. I don't know. Some of those irrigated alfalfa would be pretty darn high. So That's maybe the Idaho, uh, Wyoming. I'm going to go Idaho, Wyoming. You don't get two guesses. I, I, I just used to. Oh, well, I've got the right. top two, so. Oh, all right. What'd you say, Philip? Did you I say Missouri, said, I said Tennessee? Missouri, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah that's where I, I'll be. Missouri, Tennessee. Ryan, I saw. <laughs> Man, you're just so cheating. It's, like, I'm not cheating. I'm not trying. It's it's uh, Arizona's number one at almost seven, over okay. seven and a yeah. half tons. Wow. So that's yeah. got to all be obviously that's, that's irrigated. irrigated alfalfa. And then Washington. Oh, okay. At four. Hmm. Really? And then hmm. below, it just drops really quick. That's quite, that's quite a difference over the national average of two and a half tons oh, yeah. per acre. Yep. So that's just a little bit of production. I mean, I, we talk about hay stocks on at a given at a given particular point in time. Uh, but the final thing I want to talk about is imports and exports. I didn't realize okay. we. I mean, I knew we did a little bit of exports, but uh, any guess is what our top in 2023 we exported value wise about 1.7 billion dollars. In 2022, it's about 1.7 billion. It was four million tons hmm. of hay. Okay. Wow, that's a lot more. Uh, I, I can't imagine because that is not a a something I think about shipping very far because of the, the, I'm it's got to be Canada, Canada and Mexico. Yeah. I mean, that's especially the only if it's coming from Idaho, Washington. I'll guess Canada. Yeah. yeah. Are Canada. we asking where it's going to? Where it's yeah. going to? Canada. 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 China. Wow. Seriously, they're they're shipping hay across the ocean. That Japan seems Japan is number two. This is wow. terms of value. Oh, I, South Korea is three. Japan doesn't have a lot of hay ground. Yeah, no, no, I don't think I haven't been there. So what but, do you know? <laughs> but what's interesting, you got four, six. So then you got Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Canada, Qatar, Oman, and Kuwait. Ah, a lot of so it's either places East that, China or right. not East China, East Asia or Middle, or East. Middle East. And mm-hmm. places again that probably don't grow a lot of hay. China surprises me that they don't grow hay. Yeah. But, Interesting. Now we do also import some hay, but it's that has to be it's like a million dollars. That has value. to be Canada, and Mexico. Yeah. We're not going to go very yeah. far. That's got to be close to the borders, probably. Yeah. So I don't know. Those are just some uh, questions. I guess we can keep talking about hay if you want. Yeah, but, uh, I'm learning a lot today. <laughs> None of us seem to know a lot. We feed it every day, but uh, so just thinking back to the drought, there yeah. was a map that I pulled from a livestock market information center, which used NAS data, but you can see. Pretty much the Great Plains, the Northern Great Plains, and even the West, excluding Oregon, everybody had a, a pretty big positive increase in their hay stocks. So that can mm. relate back to the drought. But then if you go the Corn Belt all the way to the East Coast, obviously they had a got hit by the drought. Decre- decrease in decrease their stocks. Decrease in the percent change, yep, in hay stocks. And so that's something you can pull up on USDA NAS if you're interested in looking at that map. It's percent change in hay stocks, and, and it – uh, how much of that? So, with the map, if you look at the map, it's pretty interesting. So, Kansas and Oregon had significant decreases, really west of the Missouri line, the Missouri River, I guess, would yep. be the only two. What about the fires? Yeah, did that have yeah. an impact? Some on of it might have been shipping. Yeah, shipping hay from one area to another. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Well, th- thanks, Dustin. Appreciate you sharing that. That's good information on hay, and I think gives some perspective. I'm most interested in some of those yield numbers and the big differences. That does not get us into cost of production because no. with those some of those irrigated, some of the other uh, 
things that we might be raising be a little bit different. But appreciate you sharing that information. We've talked the last couple of weeks about uh, calves and newborn calves coming into the operation. We talked about preventing scours. We talked about difficult calvings. What we haven't discussed is at some time, some of those calves may have scours. In the first three to four weeks of life, our most common disease we're going to face is gastrointestinal disease or scours, diarrhea in those baby calves. And we want to be able to identify them early, and then we, we may want to be prepared because we don't know when a, a calf illness is coming. So I want to ask, and Brian and Bob, I'm going to start with you guys and let these guys chime in, but what do you look for if there's a calf with scours that makes you say, I may want to treat this calf. What signs do you see? So um, dehydration is going to be the big thing, right? So those those calves are losing a lot of fluid um, once you see, once they have even moderate diarrhea, they're losing a lot of fluid. And so, and if you couple that with, if they don't feel well and they're not nursing, now they're, they can get dehydrated really, really quickly. And they're, you know, we're talking an 80 to 100 pound calf, they can lose five to 10% of their body weight pretty quickly. So um, it, a lot of it is just about catching it early and not going, oh, it's just a little bit of diarrhea, it'll get better. Because a lot of times it won't. So acting quickly. Yeah. And when you're talking about these calves that are, you know, less than four weeks of age, I think it's really wise to have some uh, electrolyte, you know, uh, bags of commercial electrolyte replacement talk to your veterinarian about you know what they recommend um and being yeah pretty quick to use it if you see scours in the calves the other thing that, that you kind of monitor is just you know and it's it's subjective but how sick are they are they kind of depressed are they laying down are they still up and and acting like a calf if so um so we're going to start talking about the types i think what we were first thinking of is oral giving oral electrolytes and so if they if they will drink from a bottle you can give it to them in a bottle a lot of times you need to use an esophageal feeder to give that to them. And as long as they're up and walking around or at least sitting on their chest um, and up and alert, I think oral fluids is a really good idea. But if they're really sick and they've lost and they've become really dehydrated so that they're laying on their side, that's kind of my clue that now we probably need to go to the intravenous um, fluid. And a lot of times a veterinarian needs to help with, with applying that. Yeah, and it's it'd be a different product too, right? And so we're not going to give the oral electrolytes IV. Um, there's an intermediate step there too. If you catch them in the middle, um, a lot of producers can do sub Q fluids, or you can you can even do uh, intra abdominal fluids. But I'd probably really have a conversation with the veterinarian about when that's appropriate, uh, how to do it, what to be giving. Uh, but there's there's kind of multiple steps there. And, and again, I'll go back to the dehydration. So it really matters what stage of dehydration are they at? If they're mildly dehydrated and a lot of the stuff Bob talked about, so their, their level of alertness, um, how, like you see most producers beware, like their eyeballs, when they get dehydrated, their eyeballs start to kind of sink in a little bit and you see a little gap between the eyelid and the eyeball. Um, then it indicates a little more severe dehydration and we want our therapy to match how severe the disease process is too. So, um, <clears throat> but yeah, I think, how much to give and what route to give are really important questions. And I agree with Bob, have some commercial electrolytes in your calving toolbox. Yeah. And, and I think one of the ways I, I really, I'm trying to avoid them getting so dehydrated that they're 
flat on their side and they need IV fluids. And that's, that's one of the reasons to be pretty quick to use the oral fluids to try to, to avoid that. Uh, the oral fluids, you know, a couple of things. They're way less expensive. It's much more easy to uh, apply just an esophageal feeder than IV fluids or even sub-Q fluids. And so there is a real uh, advantage to watching those calves pretty closely. And if you see scours, if you see those calves that are starting to get kind of sick, I'm pretty quick to use the oral electrolytes. And, and you'd go with the esophageal feeder rather than try to give them a bottle or try to let them drink it? Or would you, or they, is that part of your criteria that they're already at that stage? I'm it's, just going to go straight to that? Well, I, in my hands, some calves will drink out of a bottle even if they haven't really been trained. A lot won't. And so I, it's easier for me to just give them a bottle if they will, but it's pretty darn quick and easy to use an esophageal feeder. Um, and so I end up probably using an esophageal feeder more often than a bottle. Um, but I don't, and a lot of that's just the calf. Uh, doesn't, will he, will he suckle out of a bottle or not? So as he starts getting better and, and let's say we've got him in a place where in a pen where I can catch him and his mother, I can catch him. Do, do I need to worry about when I give him that electrolytes relative to when he starts eating other milk or does that matter? Mm-hmm. Can I give, if I, if I'm bottle feeding him, for example, can I give them yeah. both at the same time? Well, and that's what I was going to say, cause, and that's not uncommon because if they're moderate to severely ill, we're probably going to separate them out so we can just manage the individual a little easier. And so one of the questions, do we take them off milk completely? Um, and that, I think that used to be what we think is, that, that is did, to take them that off. That did be what, yeah, that it, did be, that, that, that was what we used to say. Right. Yeah. So I think it, they, we used to say, you know, take them off milk completely, just electrolytes. And I think we've kind of come around that, no, they really need those calories and that nutrition. Um, but a lot of those products will say don't feed at the same time because uh, a lot of those products have bicarbonate in them and it keeps the milk from curdling. And, and so there's some interactions that can occur. So usually what we say is separate the electrolytes and the milk feeding by a couple hours. And so um, but but absolutely we want them to have milk or milk replacer. They, they need the energy to to actually help them recover. So don't not feed them milk. I think that's important because we used to say that feeding that milk and it's going to, it's going to contribute to the scours, but they've got to have that energy, that nutrition to keep them going forward. But it, it doesn't need to be at the same time that you're giving them those electrolytes. Yeah. And, and the other thing too is just, I mean, just to be thorough here is, um, if we're going to be handling these calves, a lot of that, a lot of the things that cause scours, um, can affect people. So, you know, make sure that, you're washing your hands, wear gloves when you're handling these animals, um, wash your boots, whatever, keep your boots separate, not just for you and your family, but also the rest of the herd too, right? You could, you're probably just as likely to transmit it to another animal, wash the equipment in between calves, all the good hygiene stuff. It's fecal oral transmission. So between the animals and people, animals and animals, all of those things. So not just wash up so I don't keep preventing transmission from others, but keep a clean environment for those calves, and it's really important on scours. I've seen people have little calf boxes where they're raised up off the ground because the other thing is if they end up sitting in it or laying in it, it can cause cost. It's a little caustic to their skin, so be sure that they've got a place to stay clean and dry and don't have further exposure. Absolutely. Anything else, Bob? No, I think that's pretty good coverage. 
Excellent. Well, we appreciate you joining us today. And a couple of things to think about. If you like these in-depth, if you like a more in-depth discussion, we do have the bovine science with BCI where you'll get an opportunity to hear us really dive into individual topics. And we've done them on nutrition, reproduction, antibiotic use, a variety of topics. Uh, if you want to tune into that, you can find that where you find all the rest of your podcasts. And if you have any questions, comments, or anything you'd like us to talk about, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.